Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder Podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, everyone. Just before we get this next history hack outing going, we would just like to extend the most incredible thanks to everybody for the support you've given us so far. The podcast has just passed 1 million downloads, which has completely blown our minds. So from Alex, Zach, myself, all the guys down the pub, we just want to say thank you so much. And to keep doing what you're doing, spread the word, tell your friends, like, subscribe, review. Remember, there's a Patreon. It's got its own Discord channel now where there's chat and things on it. There's Ko-Fi for dropping us a tip for an episode you'd like. There's the bookshop where all the latest books from our great guests are. And of course, just tell everybody about us because the next million downloads we hope will come a lot quicker and who knows what is going to come up in the next year. So thank you once again. I'm going to stop waffling. Here's the show. Hello and welcome to History Hack. We have got a really exciting episode. So I'm joined by the always delectable Charlotte White and we kind of fought over this one so the coin was tossed in the air as to who was going to get this book and charlie snatched it out of the air and just said mine so i'm just going to throw this one over to you charlie who have we got with us today and what or whom shall we be talking about we've got michelle morgan with us she's written extensively on marilyn monroe yes that's why i fought you for the book matt She's explored every aspect of her career, from her early modelling assignments as Norma Jean Baker to her lasting legacy as an unlikely feminist icon. As if this was not enough to make me love her completely in an instant, Michelle has also written books about Carol Lombard and Thelma Todd, so she clearly shares my love of tragic blondes and classic Hollywood. This episode could easily last several hours. But we're here today to discuss her latest offering and the book that I fought Matt so strongly for. It's called When Marilyn Met the Queen, Marilyn Monroe's Life in England. And it's wonderful. Hello, Michelle. Hello. That was quite an introduction. Thank you. Well, you've had quite a fabulous career, I think. <laughs> well, that's very kind of you to say. Oh, it's the dream to watch Marilyn Monroe films, write about Marilyn, talk about Marilyn. Yeah. It is. It, it really is a, a dream come true. I mean, I've been a fan since I was 15. So now to have written all these books about Marilyn and, and other people in Hollywood and all that. Yeah, it's, it's definitely a, a dream come true for me. And so, some of them are even like I, I, I think back and I go, how is this even a job? You know, like <laughs> a few years ago, I was asked to, to create like a Marilyn diary. 
and it, it had all these different pictures in by you know people like Milton Green and Sam Shaw and my job was to go through all these pictures and choose which ones to go in the diary and I'm like how is this a job it was just amazing it's like the sort of thing I would do on a, a normal everyday basis anyway <laughs> I would have done it for free exactly <laughs> <laughs> how is this my job it's fantastic yeah. oh my yeah. goodness so <laughs> I'm aware that we're, we're going to have to get started and talk about this book because again I think the three of us could sit and just chat about Marilyn for many hours she packed a lot of life and a lot of career into a very short amount of time really where is she at the beginning of this book? Well, at the beginning of this book, it's 1956, and Marilyn has left 20th Century Fox at the end of 1954. She set up her own production company. She's gone to the actor's studio. She's been studying with Lee Strasberg, uh, working with business manager Milton Green. And the main bulk of the book is from July to November 1956, but there's a little bit at the beginning about what she was doing in in the early um, stages of 1956. So she was getting ready to do The Prince and the Showgirl and she was, you know, wondering about co-stars and directors and all that kind of thing. And then we we get into the the full story. So we we generally think, you know, the stories we've heard since that uh, dear old Sir Laurence Olivier hunted Marilyn down for this role in his film, but that's not quite true, really. So how did Marilyn sort of get the role and get her movie made? Well, her business manager, Milton Green, and Marilyn had both been looking for suitable vehicles for um, their production company, Marilyn Monroe Productions. And this film came came to light, and it's called, it was called The Sleeping Prince. It's now The, Sleep, the Prince and the Showgirl. Um, but when The Sleeping Prince came, Milton read it, Marilyn read it. They both enjoyed it. And so they decided to try and get the rights from Terence Rattigan, which they did. And then they started talking about who should co-star, who should direct and all that kind of thing. And they actually brought Laurence Olivier into the production. It wasn't the other way around, um, but his production company was involved with it as well as uh, Marilyn Monroe Productions. But they came to him. Um, You know, he didn't hire her. I mean, I had this discussion with someone a couple of years ago, who who was saying, oh, Laurence Olivier only came onto the production because the existing director was fired, uh, was uh, walked out because Marilyn was temperamental. And I'm like, that is just not true. That's absolute nonsense. So, yeah, what happened was she she hired him, basically, or she, you know, she negotiated with him to be her co-star. And then he came on as director as well. Gosh, she she really looked up to him, didn't she, as an as an actor? She did. She thought that if she worked with him, it would be really good for her serious film career. You know, he he was classed as the the world's greatest actor, although some people may argue about that. So she thought that it was a great honour to to work with him and that it would really do a lot of good for her career. And then at the same time, he thought because he was having trouble getting his the film version of Macbeth off the ground. So he thought this would just be a little, you know, frothy romp. Um, that he he could just do while he was setting up Macbeth. And, you know, he even wondered if he would end up falling in love with his co-star and all this kind of thing. They both had different notions in their head as to what would happen. And unfortunately for them, none of that happened at all. 
Oh my goodness. Well, yeah, we're going to talk a lot about the relationship between Olivier and Marilyn later in our chat. But your book really draws on so many people's experiences of Marilyn at this time. This is one of the things I really enjoyed about the book is it's not just the story of what was happening between those two very famous actors. It was Mm -hmm. the story of of ordinary people and how they experienced this icon suddenly arriving in England. What happened when the peroxide hydrogen bomb landed? (laughs) (laughs) Well, basically, the whole entire country seemed to go completely bonkers. I mean, when when they found out that she was coming over here, there was all sorts of different things. There was things like Marilyn competitions and, you know, wiggle competitions and all (laughs) these sorts of things. Everybody seemed to to want her to come to their nightclubs or come to their fates or come to their, you know, different whatever, opening a supermarket, all of these things. Everyone just went crazy for Marilyn. And when she arrived, I mean, if you've, you know, you've seen the pictures of when she actually arrived in London Airport, all of the staff were out. There was people on the wings of planes trying to get to see her. There was all the journalists, the photographers, everybody. And the funny thing about it was that a couple of days before, Marilyn's representatives had gone to London Airport to meet with officials there and they wanted to know about what was going to happen with security. And they basically said, we don't go in for this kind of ballyhoo. You know, they just, sort of <laughs> said, just made them go away. But then when she arrived, they realised, oh, my goodness, this is actually going to go quite serious if we don't do something about it. So all of the press were put behind barriers. But of course, they, you know, they came out and oh, it was just it was bedlam. Basically, it just went absolutely crazy. Oh, my goodness. There's a wonderful story about her going to a press conference and she's said that one of the things she's really looking forward to in England is being able to ride a bicycle in country Mm -hmm. lanes. Um, How does that work out for her? You know, this was one of the funniest stories that I discovered (laughs) because I've always loved the pictures. There's some famous pictures of her cycling down the lanes with her and Arthur Miller on this bike. And there's also photographs of her being presented with a bike at the Subway press conference. And she was presented uh, by the Daily Sketch with this particular bicycle. And then what happened after that was because she had said that she wanted to, to cycle, every manufacturer, or it seemed to be every manufacturer in the UK, we just had this lightning bolt moment where they were thought, oh my goodness, we need to send Marilyn a bike. So for weeks afterwards, Almost every day, you know, a bike was appearing at Parkside House where she was staying and um, they were all being put in the hall. And she even complained that she was frightened she was going to trip over them all because there were so many arriving every day. And the funny thing about it was the Daily Sketch started to complain that they hadn't seen Marilyn out on their bike. Then when she was seen out on a bike everyone was like oh well, here she is she's out on the daily sketch bike but it wasn't actually that bike it was a totally different bike that somebody else had sent to her so um that was that was really funny to find to find out that that story because I've always been intrigued by the whole cycling down the lanes thing and I actually spoke to quite a lot of people who remember her cycling past their house which is a I can't even imagine what that must have been like you know just to look out of your house and then there's Marilyn Monroe cycling past. It just, 
it just doesn't compute in my brain of, of how exciting that must have been for, for especially for the the young teenagers who who desperately wanted to see her I guess for many people that what we're going to be talking about in the sort of basis your book was sort of covered in the my week with Marilyn movie that came out a few years ago Eddie Redmayne Michelle Williams Ken Branagh both got Oscar nominated for it based on on uh, Colin Clark's books, wasn't it? Um, mm-hmm. So is that a fair depiction of Marilyn's ex- experience at Parkside House or did you find other things? <laughs> I think that the costumes were really lovely in that movie and the sets were really lovely in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> Here comes the shade. <laughs> but... <laughs> but... Um, oh... It's hard to say without without seeming cruel. However, I, I do appreciate the movie as a work of fiction. And I, as I say, I love the, love the costumes and everything. The things that happened on the set in that movie were very true to what happened. You know, there was a lot of tension. There was a lot of arguments, people storming off, you know, all that kind of thing. That sort of thing did happen on the set. The sort of things that, that it depicted away from the set were you know a little bit questionable they certainly don't match up with my own findings and I don't want to put anyone down but I just found different things that had happened um, during that time and um, yeah but I still appreciate the movie as a as a lovely little fairy tale. (laughs) You can say it a lot of people have said that Colin Clark's memoirs are a little bit perhaps embellished uh fanciful yeah do you know do you know, you know what it reminds me it, it, this is what it reminds me of right when I was a teenager I was madly in love with George Michael and mm. I used to write all of these imaginary newspaper articles about you know George finds love with Michelle you know all this oh. kind of thing and to, to me I I have in my head I have got a complete story of my imaginary relationship with George Michael and it kind of seems a little bit like that in my you know in my view it just seems like it may have been a young man's um, dream of what could have happened but in in real life I never went out with George Michael and um, you know that's about it that's all I've got to say I love that. I think that's gorgeous. Um, another another one of my favourite stories in the book is uh, when the schoolboys hatch a plan to yes. go and meet Marilyn. Um, that but- was lovely. That was lovely to to um, write about that story. Um, yes, basically they were at um, a college nearby on the other side of Inglefield Green. And they, they were coming to the end of the, the school year. They were coming to the end of their exams. They had nothing to lose. And <laughs> somebody had said, what should we do? You know, we want to go and see Marilyn. We need to do something that's going to catch her eye. Because they were aware of all the school kids that used to hang around the gates. And they wanted to do something better than that. So a huge group of um, young men they met outside their college and they had instruments and all sorts of different things. And they basically walked all the way to Parkside um, late at night. They went over the gate, marched up the driveway and they sang hymns and other songs to Marilyn underneath her bedroom window. 
And I actually, I was very lucky when I, because I've, I've been researching this book on and off, on and off for 30 years. So during that time, um, I was able to speak to several of the, the young lads <laughs> who aren't young <laughs> lads anymore, but that's how I see them in my head. And um, yeah, they told me all sorts of stories about singing these songs and not knowing whether Marilyn had heard them because she never came out. And then, you know, maybe somebody losing their temper a little bit and saying, we want Marilyn or we're coming in. And, you know, the rest <laughs> of them go, oh, well, you know, but maybe now we, we need to back off a bit. And then hearing sirens in the distance because obviously the police had been called. And one told me that he remembers running from the police and there was some long grass and he was hiding in the grass and it had been raining. So it was all, it was wet. And he, he just, he was just thinking, oh my God, what's going to happen when we get back to college that, you know, at later on. And it was just, you know, it was, it was just such a, an amazing story. And the funny thing about it was that while all of these people that I spoke to, they had no idea if Marilyn had, had even knew they existed, but Arthur Miller, when he wrote his autobiography, he actually wrote about it in his book. So then I was able to tell these young lads that um, they that Marilyn had actually heard them. So that was fun. That was really good. And that, but I love that story. And I loved. I was able to write it so that I sort of brought it alive a little bit. You know, I wanted. I didn't just want to say these these students came and serenaded Marilyn. I wanted the the reader to feel as though they were with them. So, you know, I have them coming up the drive and singing the song and rattling the, you know, their <laughs> horns or whatever they were doing and and then running from the police. It, that was a that was a, a great scene to write. I love doing that. It, it really is. It's so, so much fun. And it's that's just one of the many stories that you, you bring to life in the book. I think they liberated a teacher's car to help with the. They did. The, the headmaster. Uh, yeah, the headmaster. <laughs> because one of the students was running late and the headmaster had turned up at the school and said, because he'd obviously heard the rumor that they were going to go. And he said, you know, everyone needs to go back um, inside. Do not do anything. And they're like, yeah, whatever. And some of them left and one of the, the students came running out and everyone else had gone. So he just jumped into the car and drove after them. And when he was actually stopped by police and he gave his name as the headmaster and then he basically dumped the car and just, you know, ran to catch his friends. So it was, you know, it was a really eventful night for everybody concerned. But one of the people that I spoke to said that nobody cared the next day. You know, the headmaster was was just going off at them in assembly but nobody cared because they were coming to the end of their exams and they were like well what are you going to do about it you know they just had the best night of their life in Mar- Marilyn's garden and they couldn't have cared less what the headmaster thought but he wasn't very happy by all accounts Oh my god! I mean, that's a leavers' week to remember. It uh, is. <laughs> so let's let's get back to the sleeping prince as it was at the time. Um, Marilyn goes into rehearsals at Pinewood. How does that go for her? Um, not very well. <laughs> um, the thing is, she she didn't like rehearsals anyway, and I don't think that she actually wanted to do much in that in the way of rehearsals when she did the sleeping prince, um, but. Laurence Olivier had scheduled quite a long rehearsal period and when they were all introduced to each other he introduced her in a way that she thought was patronizing because he spoke about 
their techniques being different to her techniques. And they had a lot of the people on that set had worked together on the play or they'd worked together in different films or they knew each other, you know, around the set, around Pinewood. You know, they, they were all kind of linked with each other. So Marilyn was the outsider and it seemed to her as though he was being patronising about the method, which was, you know, the, the the technique that she was studying because he didn't like the the method and he was quite outspoken about that. So from the very start, that, that irritated her. And I think that really sort of set the stage for what was going to happen for the rest of the trip, because from then on, I think her guard was up and she she was very suspicious from then on because she she just didn't like the way that he was speaking to her in the rehearsals or or the way he was introducing her to other people it wasn't a way to deal with someone who who had really chronic imposter syndrome exactly and the thing was as well that her last director Joshua Logan he had written to Laurence Olivier and I've, I've actually got copies of these letters and he he gave him lots of advice on how to help Marilyn, how to, um, you know, react to anything that, that she brought with her onto the set, how to deal with her drama coach who was always on set with her. And Laurence Olivier told him, yes, that's fine. I'll take it all on board. Oh, it's great. You know, and Joshua Logan had said to him, oh, you know, whatever you do, don't shout at Marilyn, don't raise your voice. And he was like, oh, I can't believe anyone would raise their voice to Marilyn, which I think is hilarious now knowing <laughs> the, the kind of arguments they had. But he said that he was going to take all these things on board. But then when they got into the rehearsal room, he just seemed to either forget it or dismiss it and just went about his own different way of directing. And possibly after that, he he, he learned his lesson and wished that he, he could have <laughs> gone the way about it that Joshua Logan did. But by that time, it was too late. The, the guard was up. You sort of wonder if that was just Olivier becoming Olivier. That was his domain, wasn't it? So he had to become, almost put the act on to become Sir, Sir Larry. Um, yeah. But I, I think as we've just said, to say they had a difficult relationship on this mm-hmm. film is under, understating it slightly. <laughs> Let's turn that around a bit. Did it get any better as it went on? Because it, it's a reasonably decent length of shoot, this film, wasn't it? It was. I mean, they went into rehearsals in... July and they finished shooting in well well she went home on the 20th of November and she went home almost immediately so it was a long shoot no it didn't get better it it really didn't there were times when they worked okay together there was a a time for instance when her drama coach went back to America for a couple of well we don't know exactly how long it was but it was either from you know a week to two weeks and all of a sudden Marilyn perked up and people could speak to her because nobody was really able to get really close to her on set because as soon as he cried cut, she she went off to her drama coach and the drama coach was always like, you know, you can't speak to people, you need to stay here, this kind of thing. But when she left, Marilyn suddenly became accessible to all these people. So that became, um, it was quite quiet on the set and, and peaceful and that was probably the best, their best part of work. However, then Marilyn found out that Paula Strasberg was having trouble getting back into the UK some something to do with a visa or you know something like that and she immediately blamed Laurence Olivier and thought that he was keeping her out (laughs) and um, demanded that she come back and of course she did probably only for a couple of weeks after after that before they they went home but she yeah 
by that time, you know, her, the arguments and aloofness uh, came back again. And so I don't, I don't think anybody, I think everybody I spoke to, nobody said that it was any fun on the set. There was fun moments. There was like tiny little anecdotes of funny things that happened. But for the most part, everybody was really glad when it was finished. And in fact, one person um, told me that she used to sit off camera holding her stomach with worry, thinking what is going to happen next. It was very, very tense. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. As we've brought her up, we should really explain who she was. Paula Strasberg deserves an episode of her own, I think. But <laughs> could, you, could you give us a sort of <laughs> the 30 second version of who Paula Strasberg was and, and really what the method is? Because it's something that we talk about a lot. And it's one of those things that it's in everybody's shorthand. But what, what was it and how was Marilyn trying to apply it? First of all, Paula Strasberg was the wife of Lee Strasberg. And Lee Strasberg was Marilyn's teacher at the actor studio teaching the method. He was like the boss of, of the place. And, and Paula was, she took on, you know, charge of Marilyn as her, her drama coach and, and going onto the sets with her. She was on the set of Bus Stop and, you know, and, and many different films. So she took on that kind of role that she would sort of be the traveling companion drama coach person. But basically the method is where they completely immerse themselves in the role and they have a series of different techniques and training, which seems to be very strange to, to other people. Like, for instance, Paula Strasberg would say to Marilyn, you know, think about Coca-Cola and Frank Sinatra and Marilyn would go, oh, yes, yes, OK. And Lawrence Livio would be like, what, what is this? He was classically trained, you know, with voice and, you know, all that stuff, breathing and all that. And here's somebody saying to Marilyn, you know, you need to think about a tree or you need to think about this. And that. And it, it just all seemed very odd. But basically, yeah, the method, you know, they, they completely immerse themselves into the role and, and, and take it all on and think back to their own childhoods or different things that happen in their lives to sort of bring out the, the, these emotions that need to be brought out. It's a very interesting subject, but yeah, it didn't go down well in London in 1956. So very different from don't bump into the furniture, remember your lines and cash the check. Then. Exactly. <laughs> yes, exactly. I always think it's one of those things that as soon as you hear it and knowing what, what you know about Marilyn as a character, when you hear that part of the method that Lee Strasberg recommended for his students was that they undergo psychoanalysis. Yes. Background, knowing Marilyn's childhood trauma you mm -hmm. just every part of you just thinks oh please don't mind that please don't yeah. mind that for, for money yes <laughs> and I completely agree and I think that you know once Marilyn went started to go down that route it was constant harping back to her childhood all the time and I I, I don't think that that's healthy for anybody um you know go over childhood experiences and get it sorted out away but for every 
person that she had, every doctor that she had, they, they seemed to go back over that again. And I don't think that that was healthy. And I think some of these psychiatrists kind of developed an unhealthy relationship with Marilyn. I think that they were thrilled that such a famous person was coming to see them. And it just became a bit strange. You know, her last psychiatrist introduced her into the family, for instance, and she came for Christmas dinner and that kind of thing. And so became a friend. But to me, I think, well, you're either a friend or you're a psychiatrist, but I'm not entirely sure how you can be both. He seemed to think that that was that was their technique going forward. But I, I think it could be quite depressing for her to keep going over things over and over again. Yeah, I mean, Marilyn's health is, again, a whole other other episode we could do. <laughs> yeah. um, she was frequently absent from the set and Mm -hmm. frequently late and we know from I mean I I was watching a little interview with Laurence Olivier from I think from the 60s or the 70s and he still was annoyed by how how long she kept them waiting we're not talking 10-15 minutes we're talking four hours you know four hours late on set what do we know about her health at this time that would maybe mitigate some of that annoyance that's come Mm. down through the ages well in terms of physical health she suffered badly from endometriosis and we know that she had flare-ups of that during the making of this film there was a doctor who came to Parkside to examine her and to give her treatment and I looked into who he was and his specialist subject was that very subject endometriosis and her mental health was very fragile because at that point about six weeks into production she found a notebook that Arthur Miller had been writing notes about her and that sort of sent her off into a a spiral of depression so there was the anxiety of having to go on set there was the anxiety of acting in front of all these you know people who seemed to have their in jokes and were all friends and then there was the stress of the whole trip in general and then there was the notebook and then the the health um the health implications of, of that so there was a, there was a lot a lot going on during that time and she actually did say at the end of production she got up and apologized and said you know I have actually been really ill during this trip and she was but the thing was that back in the 1950s I don't think that many people really understood stress and anxiety and mental health problems many people have a hard time dealing with that now you know so heaven knows what it was like for her in 1956 but she was a very anxious person at times when it came to her work and her makeup artist at the time Laurence Olivier asked him you know what is Marilyn's problem when she won't come out of the dressing room and and he just said I don't know she just she just stays in there she just procrastinates she just sits in there and doesn't want to come out so yeah there was a lot of things going on there And it was very sad because I think if she'd felt like she'd been warmly welcomed onto the set and if she had, if her entourage had allowed people more access to her, then I think that it it would have been a completely different trip. So yeah, that's really sad. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Just before we get on to the next point, I think that's a, a point that we kind of need to mention is the cast of The Prince of the Show. This is British royalty, you know, all, <laughs> all the way down from Larry. You know, you got Jack Cardiff. On, the film looks incredible because it's Jack Cardiff. It, it, mm. The man could not shoot a bad movie, but that that whole you know Sybil Thorndike, who is the best mm-hmm. thing in the movie. I'm sorry, we all love Marilyn, but Sybil steals it. It is a sort of British family, isn't it? These are people that have that know the shorthand that could just walk on on stage, say the lines, get off, and it would be half decent. So she yeah. is really butting up against you know the loveys. Absolutely. And most of these people had worked together before. Some some of them had worked on The Sleeping Prince when it was a stage show. And so Marilyn coming in, it's like, I suppose it's like being an outsider walking into the royal family. You know, yeah. they've got all their, their in-jokes and all their traditions and everything that they do. And you're coming in like a complete stranger to all that, thinking what's going on here. But it's funny you mentioned Dame Sybil because... When I was writing this book, I just fell so in love with Dame Sue. I've become pretty obsessed with her now. I've started collecting signed letters, signed books, um, signed photographs, everything. And I kind of feel at this point like I, I knew her in some way because I just researched her so much. And I think out of everyone on the set, she was the person that Marilyn looked up to. She she could speak to Marilyn. She wasn't scared of Laurence Olivier. And I think that made a big difference. Many people on the, the production have said to me, you know, it was definitely Larry's show. He was running it. He was the big boss man. And, you know, I've said to people, well, did you speak to him? Like, oh, heavens, no, we didn't speak to Larry. You know, we weren't allowed to speak to him. But Dame Sybil well she she had known him since he was young 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 and she couldn't have cared less to you know to her he was always a kid so she she didn't care and she it's funny because she at one point said to him oh no one's going to be looking at you when Marilyn's on the screen and and I don't think that went down very well and then she you know she would criticize his his own acting technique and say that Marilyn was the only one of them who knew how to how to act in front of the camera because 
everyone else was a theatre actor. So she really had Marilyn's back and Marilyn appreciated that too. So I think out of everybody, she was the one that um, came to Marilyn and really respected her. And every time she spoke to her, uh, spoke about her in the years after that, she was always so kind. And I remember seeing one interview and she said something about, oh, I don't think Marilyn takes direction very well, but then why should she? You know, she, she was very like, well, she's Marilyn, you know. So I absolutely adore Dame Sybil. I love her. What a legend. I mean, yeah. in terms of coming in as an outsider into a group of lovies, the fact that this had been a play and that a lot of them had played their parts on the stage already, mm-hmm. presumably Marilyn comes in and she's instantly kicked somebody out. Well, oh, there, that's that's a that's a whole other story, is in itself. You like that? Because, yeah, I did. I thought that was great. <laughs> um, when the play was on the stage, Laurence Olivier, of course, was playing the prince, and Vivian Lee was playing the part that would have become Elsie Marina. So, not only was she coming in as a stranger, but she was coming in as the replacement for Vivian Lee and all of these people who had been involved with the the play before had known Vivian or they knew her in their personal life or they acted with her in different things I mean Vivian Lee was Scarlett O'Hara you know she's she's unbelievable you know I think if I had ever met Vivian Lee I would have been terrified and I spoke to people on the set who said to me Marilyn seemed terrified of her because Vivian would would sometimes come onto the set to visit to you know just popping in just popping in you know that kind of thing and Marilyn would be completely intimidated by her and I, I'm actually not surprised I would have been too. Gosh and that relationship between those two women must have been incredible because for, for Vivian she's essentially been told she's too old she's not famous enough she's not pretty enough to play the role that she played opposite her husband Opposite her husband. (laughs) Well, I think that the thing was, this was very interesting to me when I was doing the book, because there's so many layers to the story as a whole, but there's so many layers to that, because not only was she married to Olivier, but they were also going through some really terrible times. And they'd basically just decided that that year they'd give give their marriage another shot and she had become pregnant. But then unfortunately, she lost the baby. So there was all that sort of thing going on, too. And so she was at Notley Abbey recovering from that. And Laurence Olivier was still coming to the set every day, still trying to work, still dealing with Marilyn and her lateness and you know, her absences. And then having to go home and deal with you know, another woman with her problems and, and everything. And so I think people don't really give Laurence Olivier enough credit for everything that he was going through on that set. And I know he could be snotty and, and demanding and all of those things, but my goodness, what a, what a time for him as well as a human being, which of course many people forget that these actors are actually human beings with um, emotions and problems and arguments and all of those things. And so I think that it was a, a pretty complicated time for him. Vivian was terribly ill as well, wasn't she? She was struggling with her own mental health issues, which there's this weird sort of mirror to to Marilyn as well, isn't there? That that fascinating. But dear listener, if you want to know more about Vivian Lee and Laurence Olivier, Charlie and I will be back to discuss that. And Charlie's (laughs) back soon to discuss that, actually. Another book that I'm bag seeing off you, that one. Yes, 
So there's, 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 there's a little hint. But let, let's bring in, I know we want to just talk about Maryland, but let's bring in another gentleman because this whole story, basically, if it's not star power, you don't really get into it because Maryland's on honeymoon for this shoot. She's just mm-hmm. married Arthur Mello. They've been together a little bit, but we've already mentioned his diary where he's sort of mining different ideas and things, but what is he getting up to as well? And did he get any work done? Cause uh, this is interesting for him. Cause this is right at the same time. Huak is coming down on him like a ton of bricks as well. So yeah. he's got a lot going on. Everything's going on. So what is Absolutely. going on? I mean, this is a, a thing that's kind of frustrating to me that, many people just sort of see him as a hanger on that he just came over as the husband but actually he did work while he was here he put on a production of a view from the bridge and he so he was working on that he was working on rehearsals for that quite a lot and then Marilyn was leaning on him as a support so he was often at Pinewood Studios trying to work things out there telling Marilyn that she was good enough and that she was you know she she could get through this scene and all that kind of thing then there was the issues at home because she was taking pills and sleeping pills and different things like that um and then everything else that was going on people following them around people always in their house always people in the house there was staff there was Marilyn's entourage there was the bodyguard the policeman everyone everywhere so he was I think he was struggling a little bit too because this was the first time that he'd ever really seen Marilyn work. He'd been around with Marilyn when she did bus stop. He wasn't there, but she used to tell him everything that was going on. She she wrote long letters to him and phone calls, and he would write back and everything else about different things that was going on. But this was the first time that he'd witnessed how his wife worked, and it came as quite a shock to him. I, I spent a lot of time talking about the, the notebook incident because for people who don't know, Marilyn six weeks into the the um, trip came across his notebook and it said something about her which we don't know because he never made it public but we think that it was something to do with how disappointed he was in her and how he was now sympathizing with Olivier and many many people in the Marilyn community will say it, that's disgusting he should never have done it um, no wonder she she had stress problems all that kind of thing But you've got to look at the bigger picture. Here's a man who's a writer. He's a very quiet man, very private man. He's all of a sudden in this goldfish bowl of all these people all around him. He can't speak to Marilyn about his feelings because of her own personal issues. So he writes it down. And I can see that from the point of view of a writer because I write things down too. And most of the time, I write it down and then it's just gone. It's gone out of my head and it's just, I don't even mean half the things that I've said, but he left this notebook out and Marilyn saw it. So that was a a complete disaster. But from his point of view, I can completely see why he had to write it down because many writers do. Many writers keep diaries or notebooks and journals, but it's not generally for the consumption of their other half. (laughs) And if it was, you know, then it would cause the same kind of problems, I guess. And we think that perhaps some of Arthur Miller's notebooks at the time inspired a later play that he produced. Yes, well, he yes, he wrote After the Fall, which was inspired by his relationship with Marilyn. And there's a there's a scene in there where she's talking about finding his notebook and and what it says and then um, and how it affected her and the marriage and everything else. 
And so that that's interesting that he never spoke about it in his autobiography. He never chose to 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 speak about it publicly. I asked him about it. I wrote a, an email to him and said, "Please, could you speak to me about it?" And he basically just wrote back saying no, and that was it um, because he didn't want to speak about it. But the only way I think that he could deal with that whole issue, which caused a tremendous amount of pain, was through fiction. That's the only way that he could that he could do that, and and a lot of writers do that. Certainly, I love that. I've actually been been reading it, and it's it is it's painful to it read. It is. With, it with is what you know. And there's yeah. a, a bit where it says an instant's hesitation, and he turns quickly to the listener and cries out, "Is it that I'm looking for some simple-minded constancy that never is and never was?" Mm dissatisfaction I can just imagine him writing that about his marriage to Marilyn and yeah I mean it's 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 how most writers do things you know we see things things happen to us we write it down sometimes it comes out I mean I write fiction too and sometimes things that have happened come out in fiction because it's your way I think he he once said in this interview and I'm just paraphrasing here but it was something like you can write fiction because you it's a way of saying the unsayable and I love that because things that you can't get out to other people or that you can't compute in your head you you can write it into fiction and suddenly you can work out you know what what your problems were surrounding that issue and things that happened there so I completely understand it but I think unless you're a writer or unless you you open yourself up to the whole story um there's so many people who you know who just say well that's it he was a terrible husband because of that one thing but I think you've got to see the layers and you've got to open your mind as to everything that was going on at that point you know because it must have been awful it must have been so painful to be over here on what you think is going to be your working honeymoon and then all this happens it must have been the shock the shock of his life surely Please tell me that email response from Arthur Miller is literally just no best regards, Arthur. <laughs> yeah, basically. I mean, it, it, was, <laughs> I, I, it really it was quite shocking. Like it really was just like one word and two at the most, but it really was just like da da, and that was it. And I remember writing back, going, "Oh well, you know, thank thank you very much." Anyway, you know, like trying to maybe be really friendly so that he would go oh okay I've changed my mind but no I never heard from him again I I don't even know how I got his email address (laughs) I'm a bit of a a stalker when it comes to researching people Um, I can always find my mum or my mum always says to me you know if you wanted to you could find the private number for the queen because you can find anything and so I don't know how I found Arthur Miller's email address but he wasn't having any of it anyway so it was a waste of time (laughs) Amazing. Well, look, you brought us very neatly into the next thing we need to talk about. So come on, tell us about when Marilyn met the Queen. This is arguably the two most famous women in the world at that time, if not still now the most recognisable two females on the planet. Mm-hmm. what happened did anyone make a faux pas did anyone embarrass themselves do we know what they thought of each other did they go out drinking what, what happened <laughs> that would have been great if they'd gone down the pub together <laughs> um well when Marilyn arrived in England she said that she wanted to meet the queen and so from an early stage on the set she sort of campaigned to to go she wanted to go to Buckingham Palace and have you know I, I guess have scones and tea you know and a little chat 
And so she told one of the um, publicists on the set that that's what she wanted to do. She used to give him a, a list of things that she wanted, and that was one of them. And he would take that to Laurence Olivier and be like, oh, my goodness, you know, <laughs> scrub this off. And, and off he'd go. And it, no, it seemed like it was never going to come to anything. But then she received an invitation to the Royal Command performance. And she was told, in fact, everybody was told, it wasn't just Marilyn, but everybody was told, no low-cut low dresses. Everyone, you know, has to be high-neck dress. You must not wear low-cut dresses. It was like really like, no, no, no. And so one of the reporters, I think it was Donald Zeck, he phoned up most of the women and said, you know, what are you wearing? And they were like, oh, of course, it's going to be high neck, blah, blah, blah. And he, he phoned up Marilyn and she said, my dress is a matter between me and my dressmaker. And of course, <laughs> it was so low I and mean, it was cut really, really low. And people have said before, when you watch the, the footage, Marilyn curtsies and the Queen sort of looks up and down and um it's funny because I saw a discussion a couple of weeks ago people saying oh she would she did that deliberately to disrespect the queen I don't think that was it at all not at all I don't think that 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 would have entered her head um she just wanted to wear this this gown that she thought was fun that she the dressmaker actually made note of the fact that Marilyn had actually drawn a little sketch herself of the sort of thing she wanted to wear and then of course they went into the design stage but I think she just thought it was a fun a fun thing she wore platform heels you know it was just it was gold it was just everything that you know she wanted it to be it had a cape and the thing was that they spoke about being neighbors because the queen said to her oh you know I hear we're neighbors and Marilyn was like what I thought you lived in in a castle and and she's like well you know I live in Windsor and Windsor's right next to Englefield Green so then Marilyn said well oh me and my husband have been cycling in in your park in Windsor Park so then they they talked a little bit about that and then when the Queen walked on Princess Margaret came and spoke to Marilyn and um, they again they spoke about Englefield Green and everything and she she walked on to the next person on the list and she was talking to him uh, about a view from the bridge Arthur Miller's play and Marilyn butted in and said oh excuse me that's my husband's play you must come and see it and so Princess Margaret said well I might and I actually wrote to Princess Margaret to see if she ever did go and I got a lovely oh. reply and she did actually go and see the play on Marilyn's recommendation so that was lovely to know but I think Marilyn was just so full of joy. One of the journalists caught up with her afterwards and she showed him how she curtsied and she said she was, you know, she was really bubbly and she, she really was talking about everything that they spoke about. She was speaking very fast and, you know, just full of joy. <laughs> and when, when um, they, they left London Airport to go home, Marilyn actually said that the highlight of the trip was meeting the Queen and that she thought she was a, a lovely woman. I think it's just it's amazing story because at Marilyn for the whole of the trip she she was not obsessed with the queen but really really intrigued by her and she she had an assistant who she would ask where's the best place to go for gloves like the queen or perfume like the queen and things like that so it was sort of a general build up towards actually meeting her and and it, I just think it was lovely that she was able to do it Marilyn Monroe and Princess Margaret on a night out. That would have been quite something. <laughs> I think that could have been quite wild. Let's bring this right round. So we've had this rather torturous production, which has thankfully come to an end. So how was 
the Sleeping Prince, as it was still called until just before release, received. And why? Why? Let's, okay, let's ask this. Why did they change the name? Because I think that's a fun story. Yeah. Well, Laurence Olivier wanted the Sleeping Prince and Warner Brothers. Actually, this happened right at the end of the trip as Marilyn was leaving. Warner Brothers told him that he did. they didn't like the, the words the Sleeping Prince basically because it didn't really involve Mar- Marilyn's side of the play. It was just about him, really. So they came up with a, some different um, alternatives, the prince and the showgirl being one. He didn't like it. He thought it sounded like an Edwardian musical or something. Um, him and Terence Rattigan tried to come up with other ones, and, and there was all sorts of silly different um, titles that came up. But eventually Warner Brothers got their way, and it was the prince and the showgirl. But when it was released, it was, it, well, it was, fav- it, it was kind of mixed reviews. There was some favourable reviews. A lot of people, a lot of reviews actually say that Dame Sybil stole the whole show. Many different people said that. A lot of the reviewers said that Marilyn was sweet and, and, and funny and, you know, just wonderful. Whereas they sort of said to Lor- that Laurence Olivier was stiff and, you know, they couldn't really get on board with his with his character at all. When it comes to the general public, I think that they were a bit, you know, it was hit or miss with them. It was no seven-year itch. It was no gentleman prefer blondes. But I actually, when I was writing this book, I was watching this film almost constantly. Like my husband was, it was during the pandemic and my husband was working in the next room and he would be like, oh my God, this film is on again. I'm like, oh, well, I'm sorry, but this is part of my work. And so I was just watching it constantly. Um, and I have to say, I haven't watched it since I since I finished writing it. Mm-hmm. But I, I, maybe I should, should go back and watch it again. I have said to my parents, once they've finished reading the books, they've both got their own copy and they're both reading it at the moment. And I've said, as soon as you've finished, we'll watch The Prince and the Showgirl together because they've never seen it. And just watching it, knowing what you know about this trip, I think it'll be a whole other experience. So I think that will be quite fun to do. But it is, it's definitely up there with one of my favourites because of everything that I, you know, that, that's involved in terms of me and the research for this book. So I, I just I just love it. I, I think, it, you know, it's, it's just a little frothy romp, as Olivier thought that it would be. And um, yeah, I can't take my eyes off Marilyn, too. She just looks amazing, just beautiful. She really is so beautiful in it. And it's uh, I I feel bad for it. I feel very badly for the prince and the showgirl, because I think that if if I'd happened to watch it earlier before the compare the meerkat adverts, I would have enjoyed it a lot more because Olivier's accent can only be described as Alexander the Meerkat. Oh and I'm really sorry if you've not noticed it. And if oh, it's no. Really- no, I hadn't noticed that. <laughs> He's comparing now- the Meerkat. I'm oh, really sorry. No. I thought- you okay. completely I've- ruined it for me. I've now ruined <laughs> it. Let's, let's be fair. If you ever hear the words Laurence Olivier doing an accent, you know it's going to be terrible because it was a 49th <laughs> parallel. He plays a Quebecois trapper. And you're like, what are you doing, Larry? Please, just, just, you know, just speak English. It, it's easy. Give us, give us the Larry accent. That's what we're here for. That's what we're yeah. here for. 
Couldn't oh, he be dear. an English prince? Come on. I don't know. Oh, dear. Well, that's all I'll think about now. So thank you. <laughs> thank you for ruining the movie, Charlie. Um, yeah. yeah no, you completely ruined my 30-year experience of this movie. <laughs> oh, and I told you you are going to have such a nice time on this podcast with us and I've ruined your film. I'm so sorry. Well, well I'm just going to have to go and watch it now and just yeah. see for myself. <laughs> Oh, I was watching the trailer earlier and actually it did it did just the the irony of it. It yeah. says Laurence Olivier was never better. Marilyn Monroe in her happiest role. <laughs> oh honey. Yeah. <laughs> were, I know the, the trailer fine. is quite sort of over the top, isn't it? It's like, whoa, settle oh. down. I love 50s trailers. <laughs> yeah. I think they're fantastic. I know, they're very funny. Oh dear. But yeah, that, that's the funny thing I think as well about the film that at the end of the film, they've fallen in love, but they've got to say goodbye. And, you know, we, we presume that they never see each other again. And he goes off in one direction, she goes off in the other. And it's like, oh, how sad they couldn't work it out. Whereas at the end of the actual England trip, she went off in one direction, he went off in the other. And it was like, see ya. <laughs> Like they couldn't have cared less about each other. And, <laughs> and he, he really didn't want to go to the airport to see her off. But he was told, you know, you have to go. It's going to be good publicity. Mm. And so he went and they, of course, they were photographed saying goodbye to each other. And he kissed her and she kissed him and she kissed Vivian. And then they both, they all kissed each other. And it was all, all lovey-dovey. But the, the truth of it was that, you know, the smiles were actually because they were saying goodbye. <laughs> And they hoped never to see each other again. Although they did see each other one more time because Olivier went over to New York the year the year after. And he went over to show Jack Warner, the Sleeping Prince, the Prince and the Showgirl. And he was sort of con- <laughs> persuaded to do some publicity pictures while he was there. And when, at first, when they first said to him, he was like, oh, no, 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 I'm not going. But then when he went, Marilyn was completely different you know, because she wasn't in... It, on a film set she was on a, a studio set photographic studio set which she was very comfortable in and she was very very different but I had a source who was actually there and mm-hmm. one of the publicity men and he said to me you know she stayed for a couple of roles of film and then and she was really really lovely and then all of a sudden she was just like right that's it goodbye and she just left there was no like hugs or <laughs> staying around for a cup of tea it was just like no I've done my job and now I'm I'm off so that you know that I think that was something that that shocked Olivier that he he had no intentions of seeing Marilyn on this trip and all of a sudden here she is <laughs> but luckily for him they actually did get on during that time well, he said he thought the reason for that was that she was a model exactly yes she wasn't an actress. he did say that he did he said that a few times over the course of, of his life in in books and on screen that yeah he had come to the decision that she was a model rather than an actress and I think I think that's very insulting to her because quite clearly she was a a magnificent actress. I mean, she acted him off the screen, Uh, whether he liked it or not, that was the case. And, and, you know, if you see her in the misfits, I mean, this woman was a genius in front of a, a camera. She really could act. I'll never understand when people say she couldn't act because it's, it's just not true. It's just ridiculous. Um, So for him to just sort of say, oh, well, she was a model, not an actress, is, is insulting. And it's just him sort of dismissing everything that happened between them. You know, it's very conveniently. But it, it wasn't true, in my opinion. 
it's the value that's or the the lack of value that's attached to comedic acting exactly because her yeah. timing was you know and and the looks that she could give some like yeah. it hot it's the greatest film ever made let's be let's be honest I love it she she was phenomenal and to feel like she wasn't good enough or wasn't wasn't a proper actress because she mm-hmm. wasn't crying and winning Oscars yeah it's just a it's just a, a shame that that's the value judgment that that was made of it her. is it's still made today of of performances it is it is a shame because her, her timing was unbelievable and actually on Christmas day I was at my mum and dad's house and gentlemen prefer blondes came on and I was like oh my god oh my god you, you have to watch it and like <laughs> my mum and dad even though you know, they lived with me for many years when I was a Marilyn when I became a Marilyn fan when I was 15 onwards they'd never seen gentlemen prefer blondes and I was like you know no please you have got to watch it so they sat and watched it and my dad was like, but actually that film was really funny. And when she was coming out of the porthole and all that sort of stuff, he was they were laughing. <laughs> and then um, a couple of months ago, I was like, right, this is it now. You know, you've watched Gentleman Prefer Blondes, now it's time for the seven-year itch. And they both absolutely loved that. And I loved watching their reactions of seeing Marilyn on the screen and, and like there was one bit where she's running across the floor and she kind of skids a little bit. And my mum's like, oh my goodness, did you see her skid? And oh, she's sweet. And, you know, and then, oh, look at her face there. And it was just lovely seeing them because they were, it was as if they were seeing her for the first time because they've read all of my books and they've heard me harp on about her for nearly 40 years. But to actually watch her on the screen and to see what I see, that was a different experience. And they really loved it. I, I, I really liked that. I'd say to anyone, go back and watch All About Eve and the yes. scene that she's in. A, the camera just can't not look at her, but she's learning. She's watching Betty Davis. She's watching George Sanders. She's, she's, you can see she's like, I have this opportunity. I'm taking it. And she's translucent in that, which is kind of her role. She's supposed to be mm-hmm. uh, the disposable blonde. But you can see her in it. She's just soaking all of that in and then projecting it back out because it takes a little bit of time to get over her after because, you know, she's not coming back. And mm. you're sort of like, OK, so, yeah, back to Anne and, and Bet. <laughs> <laughs> I, I agree. I, lo- I love that film. I love it for many reasons. One, because. I was born on Betty Davis's birthday, so she's my birthday buddy, and I've lo- I've loved her since I was a teenager. Since I found that out when I was about I don't know fifteen or sixteen, I've loved her ever since then. So when I first watched All About Eve, to see Betty Davis on the screen and then have Marilyn coming in, it's like whoa, this is too much. But she's amazing in it. I love I love that the scene where they're on the stairs and you know she wants a drink and all that kind of thing. It's it's. Oh, I love I love that film, and I haven't seen it for a long time. But I must actually watch that again. It's a it's a magnificent film. Mm-hmm. We're giving people loads of things to go away and watch now, so maybe we are. I'm just going to throw in Google Dawn with Sybil Thorndike in it, where she's playing Edith Cavill. It's a silent <laughs> film, and it is just incredible. Everybody should see it. It's amazing. Um, but I think we need we need to start wrapping this up, otherwise we're going to get start talking about everything I told you else. we would um, I told you Michelle and I are going to talk about Marilyn all night <laughs> I want to talk about Thelma Todd but we're going to have to do that in another episode <laughs> I'll gladly come back that would be great oh please well, do we're, we're, we're booking we're booking you in Charlie will send you a list oh good 
Michelle, thank you so much. This has been fantastic. I need to go fight Charlie for your book now. And yeah, I've I've ordered the girl as we've been sitting here. <laughs> Yay! Well, that's um, good. <laughs> seriously, this has been wonderful. Thank you so much for joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure. You're welcome. Thanks so much for having me on. It's been really lovely. Oh, and we will say just before we go, the book is available on our very own bookshop. So check out the description and you can get it straight through us and everybody's happy and Jeff Bezos doesn't get a penny. Ping. <laughs> when you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.